Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Central Library of the Enoch Pratt Free Library System. On behalf of Pratt CEO Carla Hayden, I'm Roswell Encina, Director of Communications for the Pratt. Now, we definitely appreciate that all of you are here today, especially on this hot Baltimore summer day, for this very special, and I mean really special, Writers Live event. And we couldn't ask for better timing for this, by the way. You know, as most of you know, <laughs> the NFL lockout uh, is over. It ended yesterday. So definitely football's back on, and we're so happy that because of our guests here tonight, we couldn't ask for better timing again. Um, you'll probably want to talk to him about the lockout, the NFL, obviously, the Bengals. Now, um, any Bengal fans in the house? Any, anybody from Ohio? We're all Bengal fans here tonight, no matter what's happening with Mason and, and Heath. And there's more to our special guest than the gridiron, as most of you know. In his new book, The Sportsman, and his amazing show on the Travel Channel, Dahani Tackles the Globe, it proves that Dahani Jones is more than just a football player. Maybe a recent article says it all, describing him as the most interesting man in the world. From dragon boat racing in Singapore to carrying 300-pound rocks in Iceland to biking in Italy, I should say he's not only very interesting but very courageous. And I was reading in, in that same article that he's not scared of turbulence on planes. So he's definitely got my vote. <laughs> and because of this Travel Channel show, he's added some items to my personal bucket list that I kind of would like to accomplish. But I think I may never will. I that is if I survive doing it. But there's still a whole lot more to our special guest. You think between the NFL, the Travel Channel, and his global adventures, he would have a full plate? Nope. He's doing a whole lot more. And this is when I realize he's definitely a great guy all around. Dahani has a huge philanthropic side. He helped start bow ties for a cause, which explains why I'm sporting a bow tie tonight. <laughs> I'm feeling very happy now. He started wearing a bow tie to support his close friend, Kunta Littlejohn, who was diagnosed with lymphoma. Now he's been called the bow tie guy, and bow ties for a cause help support important and special charities and causes. Now, Dhani's also been a spokesman for former Vice President Gore's Climate Change Project and for the United Nations World Food Program. And if this doesn't make you feel proud of him enough, there's one more. He's a Maryland native. He grew up in nearby Potomac, Maryland, and we're so happy that this feels like a little homecoming tonight. Now, before we start tonight, I just want to encourage everyone to grab a copy of our Compass. It's the Pratt Newsletter. It's, it will tell you all the programs coming to the Pratt Library this summer, including author, CSI New York star, Hill Harper, coming next month. Also, don't forget to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and check in on Foursquare if you haven't yet right now. Now, back to this evening. Our format tonight is going to be, you know, very casual. It's going to be more like a conversation with um, Dahani Jones, and that's why we're so honored to have here tonight a man who probably needs no introduction to moderate. Milton Kent is the host of Sports at Large, a weekly sports program on WYPR 88.1 FM. There are great partners all the time. He has covered sports, sports media, college basketball, the NBA, the NFL, and Major League Baseball for the Baltimore Sun, as well as for AOL Fanhouse, and he blogs at his site, East 33rd and Ellerslie. So I know you're not here to listen to me, so without further ado, Dahani Jones and Milton Kent. Don't worry, we won't hurt you too bad. Not as bad as uh, Ron McLean might. I did notice that cheap shot. That was good. Well, Ron yeah. McLean knows my name. Does he? He's seen my numbers and my face mask. <laughs> 
the, the question. Does everybody know who Leron McLean is? Okay, yeah. Right, the question so he was basically trying to tell me that Leron McLean ran me over. No. In fact, it could have been the other way around. I ran him over. Okay, well, there you go. There you go. Don't tweet that. <laughs> no. Does anybody follow me on Twitter? Who's, who's not following me? Who's not? Why not? What's Twitter? <laughs> well, oh, man. with all that as prelude, uh, we're going to have a, you know, a little conversation, uh, chat about things, and then at a certain point, we'll turn things over to the audience and let them have at you, and I guarantee you, their questions are going to be a whole lot tougher than mine. Perfect. Okay. Uh, I, we're going to talk about the book, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask, are you glad to be back to work? Well, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, I'm always of the, I guess the question revolves around the game of football. So I'm excited that the lockout is over. But when I always hear that question, I always say to myself, I'm always working. Sure. Um, Jerry's right here. That's Jerry. Say hello to Jerry. So Jerry basically runs everything, and a short story, we were in a, in a meeting, and it was like the whole team, and we were talking about how um, the lockout was going on and, you know, what happens because if, if and when you go back to work. And Jerry will tell you, I got all up in arms because I was like, I work all the time. I work all day and all night because I believe that there are many jobs to be done. So... I'm always working. But yes, it is exciting that the lockout has been lifted and now the rest of America will be also happy because people were gasping without the game of football, which is interesting. I was going to say, that, that brings up an interesting uh, sort of direction. Are you surprised? Like, I got up this morning and watched uh, Mike and Mike on ESPN and you would have thought, I said to him, and this, is, this, this reference will definitely date me. I said, you would have thought this was VE Day, the day that the, that the United States forces beat the Germans in, uh, in World War well, II. Well, I mean, people are excited. I mean, the, you know, football is America's game. Even though, you know, football is the most watched sport in all of America. And, and you know, what are people supposed to do on the weekend without the game of football? even though I feel like sometimes you know, NASCAR actually draws more crowds than anything else. So if they had a, like a NASCAR holdout, oh, goodness, like the whole world was shut down. Um, and it's the same thing with the game of football. But uh, it, it was interesting. And it's, uh, but as you travel and you understand how much competition is important to people and how much uh, people love the fact that you know, you're sitting in the stands, but actually everybody, when they're on the stands, they feel at the same time they're on the field. They're living vicariously through the players that are on the field competing against one another. Because right? I think deep down inside, everybody wants to really run into each other going like 20 miles an hour like we do <laughs> on the field every day. But um, competition is important. Um, football is important. Um, that sense of camaraderie is important. That time when everybody shares with their family members on those Sundays or those Monday nights are important. And that's integral to our community. That's integral to, you know, to our, our culture and our society. Do for I guess for everybody else, for most everybody else, certainly the people who go to the games, um, for those of us who watch on TV, you hear it a million times that football is just a game. 
But for someone, I wonder if you get in, if you're ever insulted because it's your way of life to a certain degree. I mean, it's how you make your living. Do you get insulted when people talk about, and they certainly use it in the context of how come these guys make all this money to play a game? I would play it for free. Yeah, everybody would play it for free until, until they realize, you know, down the road they might have, you know, unfortunately some injuries that might carry over or that they realize that, you know, the, the game is, is one that is quite difficult. I mean, you don't get necessarily, you don't necessarily get paid to play or to, you don't get necessarily get paid to play the games. You get paid to practice. You know, everybody loves to play the game. But during the week when you have practices that start, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning and you're there in the facility, the facility until, you know, 5, 8 o'clock, you know, 12 o'clock at night because you're doing so much studying, that's what you ultimately get paid well, for. Well, let, let, me, let me stop you a second. Why don't you take us through a week? Because I don't think people really understand what a football player's week is like from game day Sunday to, to the next game day Sunday. Um, you know, during the season practice, you, usually we have – Tuesdays off. You know, the game gets over on Monday night, depending upon whatever time the game is. If it's a 1 o'clock game, you're done at 4 o'clock, and, you know, usually you have some time with your family or, or friends, and then you maybe go out that night, you got to blow off some steam. And then on, you know, Monday you come in in the morning time, probably about 10. Uh, it depends upon what year you are in the league. You come in, you lift, and then you have film, and then you probably leave on Mondays probably at 5 o'clock. And then some people stay and prepare even that evening. You know, throughout the night, maybe till eleven, twelve, maybe one o'clock in the morning, depending upon you know, how far ahead or depending upon your studying habits. On Tuesdays, you're usually off, but most people come in and study in the morning time, or they study in the evening when you're given uh, you're giving the the package or the breakdown of the subsequent team. Then Wednesday, you come in in the morning time. You might lift, and then you have meetings all day, and then you have more meetings, and you have practice, then you have more meetings, and you just have meetings all the way up until about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and then people stay even later after that, probably leaving at like 10 or 11 o'clock. The same thing is Thursday. The difference between Wednesday and Thursday practice is that Wednesday would be a, a padded physical practice. Thursday might be the same, but a little bit dialed down, and Friday we call Fast Fridays, where you don't necessarily wear pads. And, um, and then Saturday practice is called don't touch, right? Because usually during the entire week you've had physical contact. Some people have ailing injuries um, from the week beforehand. So on Saturday when you're just kind of running around, they say, they call it like running around in your underwear, right? It's not necessarily underwear. Girls, relax. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, you're running around, you're just like shorts and T-shirt. That's what we call underwear. Huh? No, no, no. See? See, I told you. i got to watch out for you and her, too. Sorry, ma'am. This is a PG, PG. evening, not <laughs> went... R. R is later. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so then on, on, on Saturday, it's like don't touch because nobody wants to be physical. Nobody wants anybody to touch any part. Don't touch, don't touch. And then Sunday is the game. So it's a pretty full week, and that happens throughout all 17 weeks and then also the, the two weeks prior within the preseason as well. So it's... It's pretty, it's pretty rigorous, and you know, people don't realize that in a game you have 70 plays, and all those 70 plays you're getting hit every single play, and you feel that throughout the entire season. And it really, only, it really takes the first three or four weeks of the season to get used to the physical contact, 
and you just become numb throughout the season. And then once the season ends, about two or three weeks later, then you really start to feel the pain that you've suffered throughout the entire year. Because it's getting, and I talk about it in The Sportsman, you get into that, that special place where you kind of disassociate yourself from your body. And your mind is so far ahead and your body you really leave behind. And then ultimately, that's when everything catches up. And that's why, unfortunately, a lot of people when they get older, when they're 40, 50 years old, 60 years old, after they've played the game, now they're not able to walk. Now they're not able to think clearly and coherently. Um, that's when a lot of the ailments begin to catch up. Well, and to sort of follow up on that, one of the, I guess one of the key features of the settlement that you all reached with the, with the league was that a lot of the physicality during, of practices, the beating well, up. They got rid of the no more two-a-days. You guys can give a round of applause to that. <laughs> but then you guys are like, well, that means that there's only one practice to watch during the, during the week. So, unfortunately for the fans, you know, you're only going to be able to go to practice and you're only going to see one practice. But for a player, it depended upon some live on one side of wanting more physical practice, and I live on the other side of no physical practice. Um, so I'm, exact, I'm, I'm excited about that, but some people live on either side. But, yes, those amount of days that you hit and those amount of days that you kind of build up in your Rolodex or within your sort of file of physical contact within the game of football ultimately decrease the amount of days or the years that you play the game. A lot of people hear about within the lockout, there was this discussion about 18 games versus 16 game season. Who wanted 18 game season? Right? Who wanted 16 game? Well, no, out of you all, who wants the 18 game season? Right? You guys want, a lot of people want 18 game season. But what happens is if you take, right, so I'm going to break it down real easy. I'm going to break it down like cricket. I love cricket, by the way. Does anybody, anybody love cricket? Winston, Winston was downstairs security. I know he likes cricket because he's an island kid, you know. So just real quick, because people don't understand the 16-game versus 18-game. If you have 18-game season, that means you have two preseason games. Everybody knows within a preseason game, most people only play a selected amount of plays, right? So those selected amount of plays might only be 14 plays per game for the first game. The second game, you might only play 14. Maybe you might play 24 plays per that game. Okay? Within a real game, you play 70, 70 plays. Right? So you're adding, take 70 for all intents and purposes, minus 15 for all intents and purposes. Right? So that's 55. So you're adding 55 or 110 more plays to that person's career. And equate that across someone's you know, entire lifetime as a football player, that cuts your time in half. Right? So that was the big bone of contention. That was my, that was my uh, lockout politics. Okay. Well, I'm trying, I'm going to do my best. I don't like politics. I like travel. Really? Who likes to travel? Yeah. All right, yeah, all right. Okay. Let's go to travel. Well, well, in just a minute, I just want to ask one more kind oh, of tough question, and then we'll get to the book and feel talk like I'm about at travel. M and, what's it, MT Bank Stadium? Well, okay. <laughs> stink, stink. You'll be back. You'll be back this year. Um, the commissioner, Roger Goodell, 
Um, there are a lot of winners and losers in this, this thing. But one, one of the things that, that struck me in you know, the, sort of the back and forth, the commissioner is not a particularly well-liked man among the players. No, I think there's some players that have uh, issues with the commissioner. I think there's some players that have issues with the executive director. I think people have issues across the board. I think, you know, it's you pick and choose your, your battle or you kind of separate yourself and realize that, you know, ultimately the, the two decision makers are the people that you put into those positions. Ultimately, Goodell and Marie Smith sort of battling out between the two of them with their sort of cohorts on their side advising them for best practices. Okay. All right. Moving on to travel. Moving on to travel. Okay. Yeah. All right. We're done with football for now. We'll come back to a little bit. Um, this book, I just finished it this afternoon, and it reads. Who's reads, laughing? Oh. Yeah. Well, <laughs> see, this I don't do Larry King. If I want to interview somebody, I want to actually know what I'm talking about before I interview him. Um, you come across in this book, it, it, it's, I actually want to talk to you more, uh, uh, quite a bit about how you put the book together. I'm really fascinated because, you know, you get for certain ways and, and it's in your voice and then all of a sudden there are, notes from your, there are notes from your mom and notes from your dad and from your trainer. And I was just sort of curious how you put, you know, talk about the discipline of how you wrote this book. Well, I think you... The last 33 years of my life, I didn't do it all by myself. Um, one of the principles that we talk about within Bowtie Cause is collaboration. So ultimately, the last 33 years, or how the sportsman has summed up the last three with you know, the 20 different countries that I played 20 different sports, all of those individuals that I talk about in the book or that are referenced or that have commented were a grand part of that, that, uh, that aspect of my life. So... Um, the influence of my father, influence of my mother, the influence of my coaches, families, and friends have all been a part of that. So why not include them in that conversation? Because ultimately, um, the sportsman is a conversation. It's a conversation about travel and how important it is. It's a conversation about competition, how important that is. It's a conversation about a certain thought process. It's a conversation about um, a game, but ultimately it's a conversation about interaction with people from different places around the globe, um, and ultimately getting to know one another and just sitting at the table. I mean, uh, it's been amazing in terms of the conversations that I've held with people about who have read the book, who have read their book to their six-year-old child. Um, you know, one, one person told me the other day their son had, has Arsberger syndrome, and um, they were reading the, the book to their son, and I, was just, I smiled at that because there was a connection that, you know, they have with their child just reading the book or someone that's 95 years old reading the book, thinking about those different countries that they've been to, that I've gone to, that they saw the sport when they, when they traveled there. Or at an, an event and a girl walks up to me and shows me her travel, travel log and she shows me a picture. I'm like, that's Bassano. She was like, yeah, I was in Bassano. At the same time, you were in Bassano. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool how travel ultimately brings everybody together. Speaking of travel, here's a list. Yes. Here's a list of the countries that you that you mention in the book. You want me? I can do it. You want to do it? Yeah. All right, Thailand. I'm gonna test you. All right. No, I, I went to the countries. I'm going to get my okay. list out here. And if you miss England, anything, Ireland, Thailand, Switzerland, Switzerland, Singapore, oh, Spain, oh, 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 Russia, okay. um, Cambodia, 
I went what, to Russia, Cambodia, New Zealand. No, wait, went to Cambodia, New Zealand, Australia, Russia. Then we went to um, Senegal. Then we went to um, uh, Scotland, Italy, Croatia, um, Iceland, Jamaica. I can't forget Brazil. Um, <laughs> no, you can't. No, you can't. Yeah, all the men clap. <laughs> yeah. No, Brazil is fantastic. Um, Brazil, Mexico City, Nepal, and uh, South Africa. South, or as they say, South Africa. South I think, Africa. I think you got close, it. Close, right? Did you say Singapore? Yeah, Singapore. Okay. Thailand, Switzerland, Singapore, Spain. Okay, yeah, you got them all. Okay. I should make like a rhyme for like Christmas. Like, uh, you like that Johnny, King, uh, Johnny Cash song from the... Uh, been to all these countries and like I've been everywhere. Man. Oh, I've been everywhere. You can okay. sing it. We can do karaoke right now. Not, not in this lifetime. <laughs> not in this lifetime. Um, Does anybody like karaoke? By the way, I am a big time karaoke. Er. <laughs> Maybe that'll be the last ten minutes. We'll do karaoke. If someone knows how to play a guitar. Okay, go ahead. Okay, all right. Um, I'm sure that asking you which country the biggest influence on you is almost sort of like asking a parent to pick who their favorite child is. But I'm just curious, which country left of that list left the lasting impact on you? You know, traveling to Senegal was actually our first country that we went to uh, in Africa. And it was interesting, the, the first season, uh, we didn't go to any African nations. And the second season, we went to Senegal and South Africa. And that was almost kind of by default. Um, as when we went to Senegal, we were actually planned on going to Mumbai, but what happened in Mumbai? There was uh, the attacks in Mumbai, right? And then we were supposed to go to Mexico City. But what happened there? There was the swine flu. Um, so going to Senegal, which was sort of by accident, but ultimately because it just kind of fit, it was just kind of thrown in there, um, I didn't know what to think. I mean, I've been to, I've been to Kenya before and traveled there, with my family, I've been to Morocco, which is two completely different worlds. And when I landed there, you know, one thing that you always struggle with, or one thing that I always ask people to work against, or work towards, is erasing sort of this this stereotype or these thought processes that you have towards other countries before you get there. Um, within bow ties, we talk about you know, go to the blank canvas before you get into the country, kind of. Don't think about everything everybody else said. Just go in there with sort of an open mind, open heart, and sort of a willing, um, a willing soul to sort of receive, um, receive what people give to you. So going to Senegal was one of these places where I'm thinking, you know, one of the ideas that people have told me in the past is that Africans don't like African Americans, right? And this is sort of a prevalent idea or a thought process. You know, between blacks and African Africans, if you will, and you kind of wash that away. You don't think about that, or you go to Africa and you kind of have this, you know, preconceived notion about what the society might be like. That everybody's, you know, between Senegal and Nigeria, there's this air of, you know, everybody's like out there hustling, or people are gonna, you know, um, steal things from you, or, um, you know, basically do things to basically take advantage of you. So you kind of forget all about that. So when I landed, I kind of had these open eyes and willing heart, willing soul to just receive 
what was Senegal. And I found Senegal to be one of the most amazing, most beautiful countries that I've ever been to. And my two guides, uh, Bomba and Amadou. Amadou was sort of the proper Muslim, and Bomba was a sloppy Muslim, that they say. <laughs> and they would banter back and forth between each other. Bomba, he always talked about how he was going to be the next, if I could do an accent, I would. It was so funny. He was like, I'm going to be the next... It's terrible, okay? And I won't do it anymore. Uh, <laughs> he's talking about how he's going to be the next president of Senegal, and, 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 and Amadou just kept talking about how Bomba's a, a sloppy Muslim. He's just, he's just a sloppy Muslim. I can't, I can't talk to you, sloppy Muslim. Um, so we had this banter back and forth and just, you know, interactions with people on the, on, on the side of the road or interactions with people at Muscle Beach which was, which was one of the most amazing places. I mean, this is a gathering of all the Senegalese people. About, there was literally about 5,000 people on this one beach in Senegal, everybody working out together. There was one wave of about 500 people that ran by, that run all at the same time. And everybody turns around and runs back. It's like a big mass of people organized and working out. And then another group of people doing jumping jacks and jump ropes and other people lifting and using... Uh, truck axles with um, wheels welded to the axle for weights, but as a community, working out together. And I think when I left Senegal, I mean, I really took a part of it with me, even to the sense of when I got back, I felt, uh, I felt some sort of, you know, some sort of connection, if you will. I mean, it wasn't um, uh, maybe sort of a, a going home, or maybe that's maybe where, you know, my, my family came from, if you will. And even when we went to South Africa, we had to stop in Dakar to refuel on the way back. And I just wanted to go outside and just breathe the air because ultimately that energy, I wanted that energy back even more. You talk in the book about the sensation when you go to, you went to different places, um, having that camera and a crew behind you that people sort of flock to you. And I wonder, A, do you think you'll go back to any of these countries without a camera? And, and B, do you feel like you got a genuine sense of what the country is, cause country is like? Because you, you go in there with a bit of celebrity. So I wonder if some of the things got maybe like gussied up for you. You know what I mean? No, it was a very real experience on, on all levels. I mean, there was definitely times where maybe people spruced things up a little bit because there was a camera. But as people became more comfortable or as the situation became more comfortable for everyone around, everything became uh, more normalized. Uh, I think there's a, there's, a, there's a certain grace period that is necessary as people get used to the camera. But because, you know, my entree was utilizing sports and, and with a friend or a companion who competed in sports, ultimately they, had, they knew how to deal with uh, a little bit more um, attention if you will, because they played sports before. So they've seen the camera and ultimately they let all their guard down. And once everybody let their guard down or people got used to the camera, then the real life came out. And that's what we wanted to communicate as much as possible through the show. And I think as people responded to the show, they really saw that. I got to get you to tell some of the story about Cambodia. Um, You're talking about when they thought I was Barack Obama? Well, that too. But also, I... You want to, so you I, yeah, I get out. I get out of the car. I get out of the the van, and this girl comes up to me. She said, "Mr. Obama, Mr. Obama." 
Because I was there like, is a resemblance. Yeah, there is a resemblance. So, so similar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the, I, the thing that struck, the two things that struck me in, in that chapter were just the poverty is, is, is almost sort of like, just reading it was sort of like really soul-crushing poverty. But then also, you've got to tell the story about the two chickens and the snake. Okay. Well, in terms of... I'll tell the, well the, the poverty. I mean, I mean we think we. I mean we have substantial poverty in this country, um, but when you go to some countries and you have, I mean here you see you see pockets of homelessness. You see pockets of poverty. I mean even within poverty here, people a lot of times have roof over their heads and you know water and subsidized housing. Um, you know, in a lot of other places. You have whole entire families that are sleeping outside. Um, you know, some people that sleep on sleep on their their motorcycle, which is a taxi cab. Um, you know, they kind of fashion sort of a uh, a hammock between two taxi cabs, and they kind of share each other's space. So here's one here's one scooter, here's another scooter, and they just kind of put this hammock between the two of them, and then they sleep outside and roll it up and then the next day they go and they take like four people on their taxi cab and go along their way but the you know as I've traveled throughout different countries and even outside of the 20 different countries I've traveled to within Tackles the Globe you know even going to Cuba um, you know seeing poverty there they have incredible incredible facades these buildings that are magnificent but at the same time you walk inside and you have a family of like 20 or, or 25 living with all of the livestock, sleeping on the ground. I mean, you think, you think from the outside. It would just be like walking into the library here, which is beautiful from the outside. Then all of a sudden you walk inside, and there's no ceiling. Um, it's all dirt on the ground, and you have uh, animals and feces and just kids and you know, family just laying all across. Um, but the one thing I did learn was that even though people don't have so much, when people are willing to come and have conversation um, and willing to um, see where they're from, they will open their arms and give you anything. Um, when, I was, when I was traveling one time, and this is actually happening in Cuba, and I went to someone's house, they hardly had anything. And then all of a sudden, um, they gave us their rations you know, and shared their rations with us because they were excited that someone would take the time to step out of the sort of the traditional tract of most tourism, if you will, and see and spend time with them because people want to spend time. That's what the great thing about traveling is, is you get to have these incredible experiences. You get to talk to these amazing people and you get the real stories about what's really happening. And you don't get that sitting at home watching TV. You only get that by buying a passport, getting on a plane and taking a chance to travel. Is it still still fun to travel with all the restrictions, you know, I mean, going through TSA and all that stuff? Does it? Oh, I don't worry about TSA. T- <laughs> all those TSA, you know, men and women, you know, they, they have a tough job. Um, you know, we, we want all of our liberties and all of our freedoms, but at the same time we want to be protected. So we kind of, you know, there's, there's days that you're going to like TSA and there's days you're not going to like TSA. That's just life, Okay. <laughs> I've dealt with TSA across the board, and the best thing to do is just look at their name tag and call them by name. That, is, that usually helps. 
But sometimes, you know, they have to do their job because they want to protect us all. I don't want anything to unfortunately happen when anybody gets on any plane going anywhere because then that slows down travel. <laughs> Selfish reasons. Uh, you know, but tra traveling is, traveling will always be complicated in that fashion, but it's always a necessity. Well, traveling never gets tiring, ever. Traveling never gets tiring. If anything, it becomes um, something that you just perpetually want to do and go and do more and go to more countries, and it becomes a little bit of an, an addiction. But it's a good addiction because it's an addiction to education. It's an addiction to getting to know people and just an, an addiction to, to seeing more. I mean, anybody a Montessori kid? No? I'm a Montessori kid. No. Montessori? Anybody Montessori? No? Montessori, right? So we're, we're taught to, to, you, to fully exploit all of our senses. You know, Montessori kids would be like, hey, what's that? And they'd be like, get off my book. It's like, oh, it's, you know, what's that? Oh, that's nice. You know, people would get upset, but that's our teaching. And it's the same thing when I travel. It's like you want to go more places. You asked me before, would I go to some more of these some of the same countries without the camera crew? And I would go back, yes, because I've had met a lot of friends and gotten to know a lot of families there. Um, but ultimately, I want to keep going to see more places because time is limited. I'm sure these folks have questions they want to ask, and we're going to let them do that. But I have, but I've all, I want to try a little experiment. I like this show, this show called Inside the Actor's Studio. It's a good show. Okay. It's a great show. I always love the questionnaire right at the end. And I always said if I had an opportunity to get someone in that chair, I was going to ask them the very same questions. So, this guy, this is Should French. I practiced? Well, no. No, this is, you know, this is... Are these difficult questions? No, not at all. Nah, nah. I just flew in from New York City, and boy, are my arms boy, tired. Boy, your arms tired. Okay, well, <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to modify. I always wanted to use that on stage. Well, and Golly. you just did. All Thank right. you. All right. Okay, here we go. Ten questions. First one. What's your favorite word? My favorite word? Yes. Can it be a, can it be a combination? Like sure. a phrase? Sure. Carpe diem. What's your least favorite word? Huh? <laughs> All right. I really hate that word. People use it too often, right? Huh? Okay. You heard what I said? Huh? All right. Next one. What's oh, no, how about can't? Can't. Okay. Won't. Um, never will. Things are of, of the negative, negative suasion. Huh. Takes the cake. <laughs> what turns you on? Curiosity. Okay. What turns you off? Huh? It <laughs> uh, turns me off as lack of vision, lack of insight, lack of understanding, lack of curiosity. I hate to use the word and it's sort of it's opposite nature but you know what really turns me off is people's lack of vision and not being able to see a lot of people live such a linear lifestyle and I believe that we all need to exist within the, the third or the fourth dimension and really see what's happening in our world and not really walk down the street and be so um, uh, tuned, tuned out 
if you will, and detached uh, because there's so much happening around us and it's not at a local, it's not at a national level, it's at a global level. And to truly understand that, we have to travel. What sound, you can tweet that. I, I will. What sound or noise do you love? Crashing waves, um, rustling trees with a nice 30, 35 mile an hour winds, north, northeast. Cool breeze. Cool, yeah, cool breeze. Cool breeze, I love that. But the, honestly, the best sound is crashing waves. Crashing, crashing waves, yeah, crashing waves, cool breeze, or a light, um, a light rainfall. A light rainfall. It's fantastic. Okay. Amazing. I'm, I'm listening to it right now. Huh? <laughs> what sound or noise do you hate? It's, he has to answer. <laughs> um, it sounds that I don't like. You know when people crack their gum? Or smack their gum? I think that's really just awful. Um, when people, you know, the... On the chalkboard, it's like this, this, this shrill, this shrieking, just, um, what other noise don't I like? I don't like the, the sound of dripping faucets. That really just aggravates me. Doesn't that aggravate you guys? It's really annoying, right? Um, what else don't I like? I don't like when people do their pen. You know, click, 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 click. It's like, Relax. Or when people, are, even though that's a sign of, um, uh, of intelligence, if you go like that. So I kind of like, so sometimes I do it. <laughs> okay, now I said this, I said this was a PG, uh, PG session, and I see the little, the little, there were a couple little guys here before, so I'm going to modify the question this way. What's the first letter of your favorite curse word? First letter of my favorite curse word. The one on those rare occasions when you miss a tackle. The first word that comes out of your mouth. The first letter of that word. F. Okay. If I get real angry, you an M. Uh, F. Okay. <laughs> Very good. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Other than my own. Which profession uh, would I like to attempt? Don't say professional cyclist. Uh, I'm too big for that. Well, it could be one that I, w- I mean, I wanted to be a physician. So um, everybody knows Dr. Ben Carson, right? All right. So how about he and I swap places? He's right up the street. Right up the street. Oh, yeah. Congratulations on John Hopkins being the top hospital in the country. I am up on current events, yes. Some people are like, huh? I guess that's lost its flavor, right? <laughs> um, what profession would you, lot, would you not like to do? <laughs> you want to pass on that? You going to pass on that? No, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's so many interesting jobs, but the other ones, I'm just trying to figure out the worst one. 
you could think, you know, you know, nobody wants to sit in a toll booth. But just think about all the crazy things you see as people pass through the tolls, right? <laughs> then I'm thinking, like, you know, I don't want to be a, like a roadside construction worker. But just think about the, all the people that, you know, you would meet as they yell at you from the street. You know, just angry that you, you're stopped in traffic. Um, which one? Yeah, but just think about all the great things you get to see in the septic tank. <laughs> you know? Um, That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> any, anybody, other, anybody else have some ones that they wouldn't want? Let me see if I would join you. Auditor? Oh, come on. That would be hilarious. You know, especially going up to the person that made all this money, like multi-million dollars, and you just tell them and say, look, we got to take it all away from you. I mean, just IRS. look on their face. IRS? IRS agent. Yeah, I'd say, well, that's kind of like the same thing as auditing. Yeah. I don't know. I guess that would be, that'd be kind of heart, heart-wrenching. Heartbreaking? Heart-wrenching? Wrenching the heart? Yeah. I'd say that. Hey, auditing. You know, I would take that auditing. You know, because in the same light of seeing people who have done stuff but not done it correctly and taken away, there's also other people that unfortunately have been put in those predicaments that have done things, but unfortunately um, certain things have kind of caught up with them. That, you know, you see a family of, of, of uh, you know, four, two, six, what have you, and everything is gone, and it's, it's sad. I mean, right now we're kind of, we've been going through that as people start to lose their houses, their homes, their cars. So that would be a tough job. Putting animals to sleep, that'd be tough too. <laughs> wow. What is that? No politics. He said chairman of the RNC. No politics. Yeah, no politics. Um, last one for me. When you get to heaven, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive? That's a good question. I didn't make I wish I wish I could claim it. <laughs> what would I like God to say when he sees me? Yeah. Well, am I supposed to say the first thing that came to my mind? Yeah. Well, the, is, is it weird? All right, so the one, the one thing I just said was like, welcome back. There you go. That works. Is that weird? No. You get well, Welcome back? Yeah. Yeah. Welcome back. There you go. Where you been? I'm like, tell them, I was out there living. What do you think? <laughs> welcome uh, back. Welcome back, yeah. That Is that works. all right? Yeah. Where you been? Long time no see? <laughs> Is that is that natural to say these things? That's, just, that's something close to what they say on the show. Really? Yeah. How about just hi? That too. There are no, I don't think there are any right or wrong answers to They're only yours. What would you want God to say? To me? To you. Wow. Um, nice job. That's good. Nice job. I like that one. Yeah. Nice job. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, um, I see a microphone there on, to, on my left and to the right of the, st- of the stage. I assume if, if you have any questions. Or, yeah, you know what? Yeah, we'll just skip them. Just raise your hand and we'll, he'll call on you. You can use the microphone or you can scream it, either or. I'll just repeat it. 
I played JV football in high school, right? And I got worried about concussions. And they got the Schultz helmet, so I wonder how they really prevent concussions in football. Um, you know, he brings up a valid question about uh, impact and ultimately the concussions that are occurring within the game of football. And there's no helmet that's going to prevent you from getting concussions. Um, there are ones that um, can ward off all, you know, there's ones that can help you limit the amount of concussions. But ultimately, um, you know, playing the game of football is a physical one. Um, and the more you play with your hands, the less, the less, um, the less chance that you'll have with concussions. A lot of people think within the game that you have to hit with your head. And, you know, I've been quite fortunate. I've only had one concussion, and that was actually in high school. Um, so throughout my 11 years in the league, I haven't had a concussion. And I really think that's attributed to playing with my hands, not always having to think that every single play you have to be so physical. There is a, there is a game called a finesse within the game of, of football, and it's important that people learn that. So I would say to you that the helmet won't necessarily itself prevent all concussions. It will protect you, but play the game with your hands. Play the game um, with finesse, and ultimately – you'll make more plays, and your body will last that much longer. All right, thank What are my 10 best football players today? You know, I got in trouble last time for making a top 10 list. I guess nobody follows me on Twitter. You guys didn't see that. <laughs> the top 10? Uh, that's, that's, that's very difficult. Um, you know, let me just go with the PC statement. There's a lot of great guys playing in the league. <laughs> There's a lot of phenomenal players that are playing this game right now. It's, it's really hard to really break it down in terms of who are the top ten best players because you can break that down into a category of you know, running back, um, you know, quarterback, obviously within positions. But then at the same time, you want to break it down in terms of like best ones with their budding career or ones that are just in the final years of the career. Someone would say Ray Lewis is one of the best players. You know, um, you know some would say... Um, Peyton Manning is one of the best players. I mean, you can go with the ones that everybody knows, and then there's a fair amount of guys that people don't know. So I'm not going to go with the top ten list, but I will say that there are a lot of great guys playing in the National Football League. Diplomatically said. <laughs> no politics. Okay, so at the University of Michigan, established 1817. <laughs> the greatest university in the world. <laughs> If anybody has any issues with it, I have no tolerance. <laughs> when you're on the football team, before the first game, they take the entire team to the stadium, and everybody to sort of takes a moment to sort of absorb the energy, the energy, or absorb, absorb the history of the stadium. And that's really one of my best memories is when I was a freshman, and took everybody into the stadium, and we talked about sort of how all of the past players who have been on that same field and how all of that energy um, basically comes up from the ground into your feet and into your body as a player. And that's ultimately how you, know, sort of you cross over into becoming a, a Michigan man because you, um, you know, from that day forward, you're playing not only for yourself, but you're also playing for the past, you're playing for the future. It's the legacy that you're um, establishing then and the legacy that you're carrying forward. So I'd say that was my... 
you know, best memory. But, you know, we played so many games and had so many um, amazing moments. It's hard to kind of surmise, but that would be the top. I, before we go, I, have, I, have, I know I promise, but I got to read this because this is great. What Dahani doesn't tell you is that he almost didn't get a scholarship to Michigan because the coaching staff, for, for whatever reason, didn't think that he was worthy of one at first. So his mom <laughs> goes to the coach, Lloyd Carr at the time, and says, I'm very sorry, but I will not be paying $30,000 for my son to come and be a walk-on on this team. So then she tells him that he may end up going to the University of Washington, which is in the Pac-10, which plays in the Big Ten in the, in the uh, Rose Bowl. And then she says, I want you to just be aware that when it comes to the Rose Bowl, you need to watch out for when Dahani will be sacking your quarterback. Thanks very much. <laughs> and the rest is history. Needless to say, my mother had a way with words. Yes, she did. <laughs> How do I feel about making it to, making it to the Oh, um, it's an honor to play in the, in the National Football League. It's an honor to play football. Um, there's not a lot of people that get to play it, um, and a lot of people that don't get to play for a long time, and I've been fortunate to play for 11 years. I've been fortunate to play this game. And, um, you know, once you make it there, you have to be able to, you know, embrace it and do all you possibly can to experience everything that football has to offer. We'll take uh, three more. What important things have I learned and what important things have I... um, You know, sports create, of course, a regimented lifestyle. Um, At the same time, it affords a fair amount of latitude. Um, You learn discipline. I mean, all the sort of important buzzwords that you have learned as you have grown up. And then ultimately when you go to college and you're kind of on your own. But with with sports, you're always sort of underneath someone's umbrella. You're always underneath someone's wing. Someone's always watching over you. So um, you learn how to function within a controlled environment, but you definitely, you know, start to push, you know, push the envelope as I kind of push the envelope with tackles the globe. I mean, who in their right mind with the contract on the line goes out and plays a sport that you know, most people would think that was crazy. Um, but at the same time, that all kind of came back to allow me to play the game. Uh, and I think play the game better, the game of football. So I think it teaches you discipline, but at the same time it teaches you how to, um, you know, how to focus your efforts towards one thing, but ultimately uh, understand how your life is ultimately put together. So it's life lessons around each corner. There's life lessons within each year, within each play. Um, you know, if you get knocked down, pick yourself back up. I mean, you can kind of go through, um, go through uh, what most people think, and it's, football just teaches you the game of life. There won't be a third season. Sigh now. Um, but hopefully there will be some things um, coming up. I'm actually doing another show on VH1 um, called Ton of Cash. It's kind of a fun show where people get the chance to win a million dollars. Not me. I'm hosting it. There'll be something 2012. You know, it's uh, so um, travel is very important to me. It will. I'll be back traveling. So don't you worry about it. <laughs> Just tweet at me. You'll get to see it. Um, that's the great thing about you know media nowadays. There's so many different outlets that you can sort of access. So the best the sport I love 
playing the the sport I love doing the most was actually sailing. Um, I love sailing. I've been, I've been sailing since I was younger, and you know I talk about in the sportsman about how my mother used to give me plane tickets to different places, oh, an open plane ticket, if you will, um, during my college years. So I never went to Acapulco or Cabo or you know uh, San Padre Island. I didn't go to Miami during spring break. I always kind of went something somewhere on my own, and I always would pick a place or a windward island, if you will or somewhere where they had sailing, so I've always done sailing. And being a part of the Louis Vuitton Cup Series, which is a precursor to the America's Cup, was actually a phenomenal experience, and that was in New Zealand. Water polo. That was hard. You see, I swam, and I swam with some uh, family friends here, and I've, sw- I've swam since I was, you know, my mother threw me in the pool when I was probably like six months years old. And Anybody having children, you can throw babies into water and they'll naturally flip over, so don't worry about it. But I didn't sign off on that waiver, so don't hold me to it. Um, so, you know, so I, I, so I, I, so I played, I um, swam since I was younger. And, you know, as your body evolves, you kind of have to take it, you have to take a path, you have to choose a path. Either you're going to start lifting and play more physical sports, or you're going to have to sort of train for sort of a slower twitch, more buoyant muscle fiber. So being in Croatia was one of the most difficult difficult sports because I didn't float. Sometimes I even practiced, and I made sure I kept one of the, the, the water polo balls between my legs. I was, like, trying to stay afloat because I would just sink the entire time. Um, but a lot of people are going to ask, what's the most difficult sport? The most difficult sport was actually climbing in Nepal. You know, anytime you're at altitude, I mean, I'm sure many of you have been to Denver, Colorado. You get off the plane, you're already winded, right? That's only a mile up. But when you're almost four miles up, just kind of cut it in half, cut it in half, cut it in half. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, you go to bed at nighttime, the air is so dry that your mouth is, your, the air is so dry, in turn, your mouth becomes so dry that when you're sleeping, your tongue sticks to the top of your mouth. And you start, you feel like you're suffocating. She's like, good Lord. <laughs> you know, the, your tongue sticking to the top of your mouth. You can't breathe. You have this pounding headache right behind your eyes. And you just can't figure it out. And it's um, one of the most difficult places. And, and some people, it's been said, I'm not sure if it's true. I guess you'd have to um, check it out on the internet. That um, over 14,000 feet, your body doesn't process your body won't absorb a certain amount of protein. So that's actually when I traveled to Nepal, I lost, I think I lost uh, 15 pounds. I lost 15 pounds on that trip. I, you know, I wear like size, I don't know, 38, 38 pants. And I came back, I put the same pants on, and they just fell. You know, I, just, I, lost, most, I lost the most amount of weight out of everybody in the entire crew. So outside of not breathing and your body not absorbing protein, you know, it was kind of like after that I was on the fast track of the rebuilding process because the season was about to start. I one more? Time for one more. Uh, she's got the jersey. Um, my favorite book and my favorite movie? Favorite book is... Can I give you two? Um, well, all right, so favorite... Favorite book is The Sportsman, and you guys hear about it? <laughs> Anybody guys, any guys hear about it? 
It's about this guy, Dahani Jones, you know, travels and plays different sports in different countries. Should we call it Dahani gets beat up around the globe? Um, and, well, okay, um, Victor Frankl, Man's uh, Search for Meaning, a fantastic book. Favorite movie? I, I've kind of, I've, can I give you three? Okay, so I like um, uh, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, it's a great, great movie. Um, another movie, As Good As It Gets. Anybody see that? Not as many claps. And remember, he walked into the waiting room. He's like, looked at everybody. He's like, what happens if this is as good as it gets? You know? How about that? People don't like that word. You know? Um, huh? And my other favorite movie is... I've seen it so many, I've seen it about 35, maybe 40 times. It's Boomerang. <laughs> Sorry. It's just, it's just, it's the truth. It's the truth. Hey, Marcus, Marcus, you know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't go the rest of the line, you know. Uh, no, you can't. No, you can't. Marcus, darling. No, Marcus. I'm not wearing any. <laughs> a little ones. A little one. Hey, yo, Marcus, Marcus. I mean, there's so many people in there. There's Eddie, you know, you know, Chris Rock, Eartha Kid, Halle Berry. <sighs> David Allen. Coming to America? Eddie. No, not coming to America. No, Boomerang was the best. Oh, man, put your hands down. <laughs> we want to thank everybody for coming here tonight. Welcome to help me thank... Kahani Jones.